Well, when we started in this series in uh, Hebrews, I was just, no, it feels like it's really dark where you are and really bright where I am. I don't know why that is. I mean, I, I look good in a light. I'll tell you, I got this sweet glare right here. Oh, that's what it is. You're in the darkness. Yeah. Uh, when we started this, there it is. There you are. I see you. That's what I wanted. I want to be able to see your faces. Otherwise, it doesn't feel like we're a family at all, you know? Um, when we started this series, here's where I was going. When we started the series, it felt like, man, we're going to be in this Hebrew series for such a long time. We're really going to go through verse by verse. And I was excited about it, but it felt like it was going to be like forever away before we'd be done. So it's kind of crazy that we're now here at the end of Hebrews because it, to me, God has taught me so much and I feel like I've been so challenged. It, it feels like it's gone really quick. I don't know how it's felt for you, um, but it's fun here to be at the end of the book. And as we look at the end of Hebrews chapter 13, um, we are essentially seeing the closing of a letter. Now that's interesting because theolog- theologians have kind of argued about whether or not this book was originally presented in oral form, whether it was like a sermon that was preached by someone um, or if it was originally written to be a letter. I, I think it's most likely that it was probably originally preached as a sermon and then converted to a letter. And as we get to the in here, um, we do see that the, that the writer has sort of closed it like you would a letter. In fact, the closing here is very similar to the closing of several other uh, biblical letters. So we, we see some similarities there, although there are some very unique things at the end of this book that I think are particularly of interest to us as we've been in this series in the book of Hebrews, and there are all these recurring themes. We've heard, we've heard the writer say several things through the course of the time that he'll then re-emphasize here in his closing statement. So what we have to do this morning is be really careful that we don't just sort of rush through the ending of the book. Uh, I know sometimes when you get a letter or sometimes when you get an email, you kind of get the gist of what the writer's trying to say at the beginning, and then you sort of skip past those closing remarks because it just feels like they're trying to figure out a way to say, I'll see you in a month, goodbye, you know, whatever. We don't want to rush past. We want to slow down and listen to this benediction. We want to slow down and listen to these closing remarks because they are very helpful in sort of refreshing and reminding us about really the point of the entire book. Now, it is interesting at the very end, if you look at those last three verses, there are some kind of closing remarks. He says in 22 and following, I appeal to you, brothers, uh, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. We've seen exhortation throughout this letter. So those warnings, those exhortations, the warning not to drift, the warning to keep our eyes on Jesus, the warning to couple our knowledge of God with action and not to fade away, the warning not to get caught up in uh, religious activity, but to be strengthened with grace. There have been all kinds of exhortations. It's important for us to see that was intentional. And the writer says, hey, you're going to have to bear up under this because I I was writing it to you for a reason. He says, also though, it's funny in 22, he says, I appeal to you brothers, bear with my word of exhortation for I've written to you briefly. I think it's kind of interesting that he says he's written to you briefly. I mean, we just spent like a year studying this letter and we could have taken a lot more time. It's interesting that in his perception, it was brief. Somebody said in our teaching team meeting this week, uh, that just proves that the writer is a pastor because only a pastor would write 13 chapters, takes like an hour to read, you'd spend a whole year studying it, and then you'd go, well, I could have said a lot more if I'd wanted to, right? So we do get a little bit of the pastoral heart in his uh, perception that it was briefly written. But then uh, there's a couple other closing comments. He says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. I love the fact that he closes the book, or he closes the letter with this exhortation to grace. Grace be with you all. Because at the beginning, if you remember the beginning of chapter 13, the writer was very clear to say, look, it's not about the food you eat and it's not about the altar you sacrifice on. It's not about priestly vestments or organized religion. None of those things can 
strengthen your heart. Your heart will only be strengthened by the grace of God. Don't forget the grace of God. So it's really beautiful that as we look at the sort of the flow of the whole book, the writer wants to finish by pointing us again to God's grace. We don't want to miss that. He finishes by saying, grace be with you all. But before he gets to those closing remarks, he finishes with, uh, with both a request for prayer and then a prayer for those that he's writing to. And I think that's really significant because if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, he not only talks about the fact that our hearts are strengthened with grace, it's not about our religion or our activity that we're saved. He then goes on in the section we looked at last week and says, even though we're saved by grace and even though our heart is strengthened by grace, there is still a great privilege for us to bring sacrifices to God, not to earn favor with him, but to please him. We bring sacrifices of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge the Lord Jesus, Jesus, right? We bring sacrifices of good works and sharing with those who are in need. We bring sacrifices, he says, of submission and obedience to our leaders, those who have watch over our souls and who are accountable before God. It's really interesting, and I mentioned this last week as we were studying it together, it's kind of awkward as a, a church leader to teach a section that says, submit to church leaders, because it feels a little bit like I'm going, hey, obey me, listen to me, and we talked about that some last week, but I think it's so telling, and it gives us such a great window into the life and the heart of the writer of this book, that immediately after saying, hey, there is a call for us to submit to authority, there is a call for us to obey our ecclesiastical leadership as those who are watching over our souls, and those who are accountable before God, it's amazing to me that then he immediately goes, and so, pray for me, right? The very first place in the entire book that we see the writer ask for something for himself, he's asking for prayer. He says, pray for us. And I think it comes from a position of recognizing that he is accountable before God. That there's a heavy responsibility to watching over the souls of the flock of God. That there is a great weight that comes with it. And he's recognizing here his dependence upon God. We see in that humility. We see in him a recognition that there's a weight to that role. And so he also sees that it's not going to be because of his own strength. It's not going to be because of his own power. It's not going to be because of his own efforts that he's successful in that process. He will only be successful in watching over souls. He'll only be successful in being accountable before God in his role of shepherding if he also has the prayers of people, if if he's being brought before God. So he says, pray for us. Look at verse 18. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. He's anxious to not just be shepherding them from a distance, right? We understand that there's value, and we've talked about this before. There's value in in writing a letter to somebody or sending an email. You're able to communicate some things. But the value of writing a letter or of communicating or trying to shepherd from a distance pales in comparison to the kind of shepherding that happens across a table. That's why being a family is so important, even in a local church like this. Because it isn't just about one guy getting on a stage and declaring some stuff to people at a distance. It's about us being in it together. And so even in the book of Hebrews, we hear him saying, pray, pray earnestly that I'll be restored to you. What's he saying? I don't want to just write you some stuff, some exhortation from a distance and put it in an envelope and send it. I want to be with you. I'd rather be making these exhortations face to face. I'd rather be doing it over a table. I'd rather be in fellowship with you than trying to shepherd from a long ways away. It's a reminder to all of us because each and every one of us are in some kind of leadership, right? You might just be a leader in your school, you might be a leader in your home, you might be a leader in your family, you might be a leader at your work, you might be a leader in the church. All of us have different people that we're pouring into the lives of, and it's an important reminder for us, or just like a little, a little box to sort of check in your head to remember 
But the best kind of leadership is the kind of leadership that happens in family, that happens in relationship. Not, not the stuff you crank out in an email or the stuff you write in a letter. There's some beautiful things about a handwritten letter, but they pale in comparison to that face-to-face communion that happens between people. He says, pray that I'll be returned to you soon. And then, in thinking about the request that he's made, he asks them to pray for him, and then he pivots immediately and prays this prayer, this benediction over, over the congregation that he's writing to. And so it behooves us this morning to pay attention to his benediction. We want to see what it is that he's praying, and we want to recognize that, that the things he's praying for are rooted in the character of God. So the things he's praying for begin with who God is. And then when we understand who God is, we can understand what it is he's praying for, and then we can understand the why. The who, the what, and the why. He begins this benediction or this prayer. Look at verse 20 by talking about God. Let's read 20 and 21 together. He says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And it can be tricky sometimes to know what to pray or to know the right way to pray or the right context to know exactly what to say. Um, I don't know how, how much opportunity you have to pray for other people, but it's kind of a, there's a tricky balance that kind of has to be maintained. My, uh, my son Hank tells a story about being, he was a VBS leader a few years ago and he was working with a bunch of first graders or whatever and he, he's sitting down with, um, with these kids and there, there was like a prayer time. And uh, in the prayer, he says, okay, you know, does anybody have any prayer requests? And there were a couple of little things that came up, you know, and then there's this one little guy who raises his hand and he goes, I have a prayer request. And so my son says, okay, what's the prayer request? And he says, can we please pray for my grandpa Joe? And my son was like, oh yeah, of course we can pray for your grandpa Joe. Like, what's going on with your grandpa Joe? And the little boy says, well, my grandpa Joe is very sick. And he's in the hospital and the doctors have given him medicine, but they don't know if the medicine's gonna work and we're all really sad and we're really scared. Could we just please pray for my grandpa Joe? And so my son's like, of course. In fact, we could pray for your grandpa Joe right now. Is there any of you who wanna pray for grandpa Joe? And there was this other little boy who raised his hand. He says, I'll pray for Mikey's grandpa. And so, uh, so, you know, my son says, well, bow your heads and close your eyes, everybody. we're going to pray. And uh, the, the little boy who volunteered to pray, he goes, like, he goes this. He goes, dear Jesus, please help Mikey's grandpa Joe to die quick. <laughs> and help him not to be an idiot. And my son's eyes kind of flew over. He's like, no, that's not what we're going to pray. We're not praying for a speedy death, right? We were hoping for a recovery. He's like, help him not to be in any pain and help him just to go to be to heaven and for his family just to get back to their regular lives. <laughs> you know, it was, just, it was like exactly the opposite kind of thing. But it came from a really good heart. It just maybe wasn't exactly what Mikey was hoping for, right? When he raised his hand with the request, he wasn't really hoping that he'd pray for a quick death for Grandpa Joe. Uh, I love the fact that the writer to the Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, knows exactly what to pray here. And, and if, we're, if we're careless, we'll race past it and we'll go, yeah, yeah, he's praying to God that God will equip them and that God will be glorified. Into the thing, can we, can we go? Don't move too fast. Slow down first and think about, even just in his sort of casual reference to who God is, think about the deep and beautiful theology that's represented in this verse. Because in this benediction when he talks about God, he says all kinds of stuff that you and I don't want to miss. All kinds of stuff about who God is that is absolutely re-referencing things he's already said in Hebrews. He starts by saying, may the God of peace, he prays first, now may the God of peace who brought Jesus again from the dead, he talks about our God being a God of peace and that's significant. 
The fact that our God is a God of peace is significant. That's not something you want to rush past because not only is God peaceful in and of himself, right? The Trinity understands peace and harmony and unity among itself, right? God is himself at peace. But there's also something that the writer has said again and again and again in the book of Hebrews, which is that because of the great sacrifice of Christ, because of his superiority, because of his superior shed blood, because of his superior high priesthood, because of his superior covenant, because of all those things, he restores us to peace with God. That we were broken in our relationship with God because of sin we were cut off from God. The Old Testament sacrifices could not repair the relationship between God and man and so there was this distance. But remember, we have been invited to the holy mountain, to the new Jerusalem. We've been invited to the presence of Jesus, this greater meteor of a greater covenant. And so when he says, I'm praying to the God of peace, you don't just want to go, yeah, yeah, peace. No, you you want to stop and think about what that means because I would guess that there are many of you here this morning who don't know peace right now, right? Who are restless in your heart, restless in your soul, who feel very troubled, very heavy hearted, very burdened and frustrated. And so the fact that this is a God of peace, not only that he has peace in and of himself, but that he makes peace between God and man through his sacrifice, and then he extends to us this shalom. In the Greek, the word is irene, but it means the same thing. It means completeness or wholeness, peace. God is a God who not only is peace, but he is a God who offers peace, who makes peace. And we don't, want to, we don't want to cruise past that too fast because for many people today, they don't have peace. They don't know where to find it. They're in a constant struggle. That's why so many people turn to drug addiction or to alcohol addiction or to trying to satisfy themselves with sexual pleasure or whatever else, trying to find some sort of rest. And the author has already said, be careful that you don't fail to enter into the rest of God, right? Hebrews 4. Our ancestors, they got right to the edge of the promised land, the promised rest of God, and they didn't get to enter it because they didn't couple what they know about God with action. They didn't trust him, and so they missed out on the rest of God. He is a God of peace, and we don't want to drift away from that. We don't want to lose sight of it because he is peace, he makes peace, and he offers peace. I love in... um, I love in John 20, when Jesus busts into the, uh, the upper room. It's uh, Easter Sunday, right? Easter Sunday night. It says all the disciples were like huddled together in this room behind a locked door for fear of the Jews. They were all scared. On Easter night, you'd think they'd be celebrating, but they're all scared. And Jesus busts in there, right? He walks through the locked door, and he looks at them, and the first, he says it twice, but the first thing out of his mouth is, peace. And what's so cruel about that is that for the first, I mean, that had always been a sort of a common greeting. You'd see somebody and you'd say shalom, and when you say goodbye, you'd say shalom, and it meant, you know, this comprehensive sort of wellness, but it was sort of just a casual greeting, like hello and goodbye, shalom. When Jesus busts into that room on Easter Sunday night and says peace, he's not just giving them a casual greeting. It's the first time in human history where peace is actually available, Because Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, because he rose from the grave, for the first time ever, Jesus can look at mankind and say peace in a way that isn't just colloquial, but is true. He can say peace is available to you through the shed blood of Christ. So when the writer prays to the God of peace, we don't want to rush past it. Jesus himself says in John 14, and there are multiple places in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to as a God of peace, but out of his own mouth, Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You feel troubled this morning? 
Is it possible that you've taken your eyes off the God of peace? Is it possible that you started to drift away from the God of peace? Is it possible that, that you've forgotten what you've experienced with this God of peace who both is peace, who extends peace, and who makes peace between God and man? Not only does he pray to this God of peace, but he also, look at what else he says about God. Back to Hebrews 13, looking at the character and nature of God in this prayer. He says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Not only does he talk about Jesus or, or God being a God of peace, now he's talking about God being a God of power. He says the same God of peace did what? He brought the Lord Jesus from the dead. He raised him from the dead. So as he's praying, he's acknowledging not only that God can extend to us his peace, but that God's power can be brought to bear in our life. That's very meaningful to us. We talked, if you were here on Easter, we talked about the fact that the reason we celebrate Easter is because it proves beyond any question that Jesus has the power to make dead things live. And each and every one of us in our sin are dead. We need resurrection power. I would guess that there may be some of you in the room today who not only feel restless or who feel troubled in your heart, but I would guess there's some of you who feel weak, who feel powerless. Some of you who in your day-to-day life feel like you, you know the things that need to be different, but you just don't have the power to change them. Well, the great news for you is that the God we're praying to, the God that this writer has been focusing us again and again on, is a God of power. He has all the power you don't have. So he says, may the God of peace, this God who raised Jesus from the dead, may this God work in your life. We'll talk about that working in a second, but think about this. It's a God of peace. It's a God of power. And I love the fact that he talks about him raising the Lord Jesus. That title might not matter to you. I use that title a lot. You probably noticed. I say Lord Jesus a lot. I like that title for Christ. Because when we say Lord Jesus, we're acknowledging both his kingship, his lordship, the the mastery. We kneel before him. But we're also recognizing his humanity. The word Jesus, that, that's his human name. That's the name of a, of a brother. That's the name of, a, of a, an incarnate Messiah, Jesus. So when we say Lord Jesus, we're talking about both the king and the brother. That's who he raised from the dead. The writer is pointing us again, and he's done this throughout the entire book. He's pointed us at the peace of God. He's pointed us at the power of God. He's pointed us at the provision and the presence of God. He goes on to say this. He says, uh, he says, I make the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. Think about that. The great shepherd of the sheep. That's who this Lord Jesus is. Uh, for those of you who are into Bible trivia, that's the first place in the Bible that we hear Jesus referred to. It's the only place in the Bible we hear Jesus referred to as the great shepherd. Commonly, we will refer to Jesus as the good shepherd. We do that because Jesus himself referred to himself as the good shepherd. We see that in John 10. In John 10, Jesus talking about himself says this in verse 11. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not, uh, who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. When Jesus refers to himself as a good shepherd, the word, the adjective good is referring to his sacrifice. He says, I'm a good shepherd because I give my life for the sheep. So it's interesting in Hebrews 13, as the writer is talking about the resurrected Jesus by the power of this God of peace, that Jesus the Lord has been raised from the dead and he refers to him as a great shepherd. What's the distinction between good and great? A good shepherd is one who lays down his life. The great shepherd is the one who's living still. The great shepherd who isn't dead, he's not on a tomb. 
He's alive to intercede for us today. He continues to pray on our behalf. He continues to guide and direct, to minister to us. This God of peace and this God of power is still present. He's a great shepherd. And that, even the picture of shepherding is so beautiful, right? It's a picture of love and compassion. For many of us, we feel restless. We feel troubled. Some of you feel weak. I would guarantee that there are people here this morning who feel alone, who feel like you're not loved or feel like nobody sees you or nobody cares. The fact that the God of the universe would identify himself as a shepherd, that's one who's with the sheep, that cares about them. There's a really great passage, there's a couple of these, but in Mark chapter six, talking about Jesus, Mark 6, 34 says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. I like the fact that when we think about this God of peace, this God of power, that this is also a God who's present and who provides for us as a great shepherd. He sees you, he knows you, you're never alone. He's not dead, he's alive. He brings this comprehensive wellness and he brings his power to bear in a way that is compassionate, that is affectionate. So in our loneliness and in our doubt and in our weakness and in our fear, we can look to this God. You see how rich this prayer, I mean, it's, it's like one verse, but he's saying so much about God. He's not even done yet. So he says this, back to Hebrews 13. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. If you've been with us in this series all the way through Hebrews, we've looked again and again at the difference between the shed blood of bulls and goats, the difference between the Old Testament sacrificial system and the supremacy of the sacrifice of Christ. You could read a couple of verses in this regard, but Hebrews chapter five, Hebrews chapter five, verse nine says, being made perfect, speaking of Jesus, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 12 says, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. Further on in 9 verse 15 says, Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What's he saying? He's saying not only is this God a God of peace and a God of power who can raise the Lord Jesus from the dead, he's a great shepherd who is with us in compassion and love. And he has secured for us an eternal sacrificial covenant. What's that saying? He's reminding us in this benediction of the promise of God. The promise of God. You see, because I think, again, in our culture and and in human history, you get leery of people abandoning you. They make a rule and then they change it. Listen, this eternal covenant secured by the blood of Christ will never be repealed. It will never be revoked. It will never be amended. It will never fail. It will never die away. This eternal covenant is secured because of the greatness and the grandeur, the supremacy of the shed blood of Christ. And so we find hope in that, don't we? Something you can stand on, something you can believe in, something you can trust. The eternal covenant that God secured. We read in Hebrews chapter eight, if you'll remember about what that covenant looks like, right? It's a very personal covenant. Hebrews chapter eight, quoting from Jeremiah, this new covenant, this eternal covenant secured by the blood of Christ, says in Hebrews 8.10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, 
for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. He's praying to a God of peace and a God of power, a God who is present, a God who provides, and a God who has promised us this eternal covenant and it will not change. That's the God he's praying to. That's the God that the writer has been trying to get us to fix our eyes on, to be anchored in, to follow into the holy place, right? So many of these exhortations in the book of Hebrews have been about continuing to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Why? Because he's the God of peace and power and provision and presence and all of these things. And who he is absolutely is brought to bear on what he does. So now when the writer prays for something, what he's praying for is deeply rooted in who he's praying to. You can't separate the two. Here's what he prays for. Look at verse 21 of Hebrews 13. What he prays for is this. He says in 20, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Here's what he's praying for, 21. Equip you with everything good. May he equip you, that God of power and peace, will he equip you? When I think about equipping, I think about equipment, right? I think about gear. You know, if you're going camping and you put on all kinds of, you get all the right stuff, you got the, the ice axe, that's the thing you take camping, right? Yeah, you take that with you, and then you got like the, I don't know, I don't go camping. But um, when I think about equipping, I also think about like military, like adventure movies, there's always like that scene where Rambo like puts on the bandana and then he puts that knife in the thing and he gets the big guns and, and he has the big guns, whatever. So he's Rambo equipping himself. But what's important here is that it's not that kind of equipping. It's not that God's gonna give you a bunch of tools in order to go and do these things. He's gonna equip you with a bunch of resources. That's not what the word means. The word doesn't mean he's gonna give you a bunch of stuff. The word there that's translated equip is the same word we see in Matthew chapter four about the, the, uh, the disciples mending their fishing nets. It's a word that means to mend or to repair or to make complete or to make whole, Right? When it says he will equip, it's the idea of of tying up the holes in a fishing net. And that's the way it would have been understood in the time in which this was written, the time in which it was first spoken. It says, I'm praying that this God of power and peace and provision, that he will mend you, that he will repair you, that he will make you whole with every good thing, right? That's different than just putting a knife in the belt and putting a bandana around the head. I, I was reminded this week, thinking about equipping, of the story of David and Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17, if you haven't read it, it's really fun to go back and read. But if you're familiar with the story, you know that Goliath of Gath, he's a Philistine champion, he's cursing the armies of God, and he's cursing God himself, and he's calling for Israel to send out a champion, and none of the Israeli army will go and fight Goliath, right? They're all kind of huddled down, they're all scared, even King Saul. Well, David is this little shepherd boy, he's sent by his dad up to the front lines to deliver a couple of sandwiches, right? And he shows up and he hears Goliath cursing God, and David goes, why isn't anybody doing anything about this turkey, right? This guy's not allowed to talk about God like that. Tell me to get out there and crush that dude's skull, right? And his brothers are like, shut up, shut up, get out of here. You're just a little chicken or whatever. And uh, David's like, no way, man. I'm not gonna sit around and let this guy curse the God of Israel. Not gonna happen. So he, he volunteers to go and fight Goliath. They take him before King Saul, right? They take him before King Saul. And King Saul says to him, how are you gonna fight Goliath? You're just a kid. And Goliath has been a man of war since he was born, right? What are you gonna do? And David goes, well, I'm a shepherd. I fought a bear and God delivered the bear to me. I fought a lion and God delivered the lion into my hands. I'm looking at this giant. I'm thinking God can deliver him too. I'm not worried about it. 
So Saul then equips him. He equips David with uh, his armor. He gives David his armor. And it's funny, in Sunday school when I was growing up, I remember like the flannel graph presentation or whatever, like the Sunday school books. And my understanding of the story of David and Goliath was always that the reason David rejected Saul's armor was it was too big, right? I remember seeing pictures of like the tiny little David head in the, in the giant helmet. You know what I'm talking about? I was always given the impression that the reason that David said, I don't want all this equipment was because it didn't fit him, but that isn't true. If you look at 1 Samuel 17, when David rejects Saul's equipment, he doesn't reject it because it doesn't fit. He rejects it by saying this. He says, I can't take this stuff, I can't wear this armor because I haven't tested it. What's he saying? He's saying, look, when it comes to fighting giants, I've tested Yahweh. I've tested Jehovah, I know he's got power. I know he will provide. I know he'll be with me. That I know. I know the power of God that can be brought to bear. This armor, I've never worn this before. I don't know anything about it. It's untested. I don't want to wear it because I'm not confident in the equipment. What I'm confident in is the power of God. What, what was Saul's problem? He had the right equipment, right? Saul's problem was not that he didn't have the right armor. He had great armor. His problem is that he had all kind of holes in his nets, Right? Saul was fearful. He didn't trust in the power of God. He didn't trust in, in his own ability to be empowered by God to do the things that God had called him to do. There were all kinds of holes in Saul's nets that needed to be mended. All kinds of holes in Saul's boat that needed to be patched. And what the, what the writer to Hebrews says here is, I'm praying that the God of peace who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, this great shepherd of the sheep, who through the blood of Christ has secured this eternal covenant for us. I'm praying that he will mend you, that he will repair you, that he will restore you. And the good news for us this morning is that it doesn't matter what size the holes are in your nets. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter how leaky your boat is, right? It doesn't matter how much water you're taking on. By the power and the peace and the presence of God, he can heal and restore your nets. He can equip you. He can mend you with every good thing. And you go, yeah, every good thing. So that's what, like a Corvette? That's like a full bank account? He's gonna mend me with a, a full head of long flowing golden hair? He's gonna mend me with you know, better vision? He's gonna mend me with all these things I want? No, no, listen. When it says he will equip you with every good thing, don't be confused. Because a lot of times we look at a verse like that and we go, God wants to give me all this good stuff. But your definition of good stuff and God's definition of good stuff might not be the same. In this text, here's what it says, Hebrews 13, 21, that he will equip you with everything good that you may do his will. The very definition of the good things he will use to mend your nets are things that will lead you in the direction of God's will. Now, if your definition of good isn't synonymous with the idea of God's will for you, then you're gonna be frustrated because God might, I mean, he might give you a Corvette, right? That might be part of his plan for you to fulfill his will in your life. That's possible. But what God is going to equip you with, what he uses to mend the nets is everything we need. No matter what kind of hole you've got in your net, no matter how long you've felt broken, no matter how weak, no matter how tired, no matter how heavy-hearted, no matter how burdened, no matter how alone, no matter how loved you feel, he can mend that net with every good thing, whatever you need. He will mend it for the sake of his will, that your, his will will be done in you. And that, that then brings us to the next part of the prayer. He says, I pray in 21, I, I pray that he will equip you with everything good that you may do his will. And then look at this, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. That the God of peace and power and all these things that he would work in us. What's that saying? It's saying that God doesn't just mend the net of our life. He doesn't just plug the leak in our boat so we can sail the ship. He doesn't just mend the net so we can go fishing. 
God is both the restorer and repairer of the net and the fisherman. God is both the one who plugs the leaks in our boat and the sailor. It says here that he will equip us with every good thing according to his will and he will work in us for his good pleasure through Jesus Christ to whom belong glory forever and ever, amen. So, so what's he saying? He's praying that God will both restore the parts of us that are broken so that then he can utilize our lives. It's God that works in us and that's why we see all kinds of verses in the scriptures that talk about this. You can look at Philippians chapter two, verse 13. It says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Jesus himself says in John 15, five, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has this desire to work and to move in us. He will equip us, He will mend our nets. He will fix our leaks. But then what he also wants to do and what he does do is empower us. He not only fixes the nets, he does the fishing. He not only fixes the boat, he sails the ship. He says, I pray that this God of peace and power, this great shepherd, this God of eternal covenant will equip you to do his will with everything you need and that he will work in you through Christ. What that does is it brings this sense we sometimes have of like, exhaustion and tiredness and brokenness and this fear of not doing enough and not doing it well enough and it takes all that weight and pressure off and says no it's God's work in you it's God's work that repairs you it's God's work that leads you to do his will and then that that sort of then brings us to the final answer which is why does he do that why does he equip us and why does he work in us and the writer talks about that too in his prayer why does he mend the nets of our lives Why does he restore us to wholeness? He does it for a purpose. He does it for the sake of his will, right? That's the first answer we see in the text. And you go, well, what is his will? I'm glad you asked. The writer talks about that too. That he would equip us for the sake of his will with every good thing that we would what? That we would work. That we would bring pleasure to him. And that he would be glorified. I don't know if you've ever had one of those existential moments where you look into the mirror and you go, what am I doing here? What's this all about? Why am I here? What's this for? There's an answer to that question in the scriptures. There's a reason why your heart is beating this morning, why your lungs are taking in air. There's a reason why we're on the planet, and it is to glorify God in thought and word and deed and attitude. The writer to Hebrews has pushed us to that again and again and again. Your lives were created with a purpose. God is restoring and redeeming you to be able to live in that purpose, which is his glory. And part of the way in which he is glorified is as we enter into relationship with him as we please him in our sacrifices. But that work of glorifying God is not something you do. It's not something you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and strive after. It's something that he mends the nets to be capable of and then works in you through Christ for God's glory. I love the fact that here at the end of this book, the writer has pushed us back to so many things he's already said. Hebrews chapter 11, you probably remember this. Hebrews chapter 11, um, verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that, that he rewards those who seek him. 
All through this book, we've studied the fact that we have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Why do we have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Why must he be the anchor for our soul? Why must we enter into the holy place that Jesus has gone as a forerunner? Why is he the author and perfecter of our faith? All of those things, we fix our eyes on Jesus because if we take our eyes off of him, we lose the peace and the power and the presence and the provision, the promises, all of those things. And that's what our ancestors lost. It's the very reason the writer has written to us in its entirety to say, don't lose sight of Christ because in Christ is all the power to do the things you were created to do. He does them in you and through you for his good pleasure. So here in this benediction, He started by looking at them and saying, will you please pray for me? And then he turns and he prays this beautiful blessing that is just a refresher of everything we've seen. And I'll close with one last little note. I I love the fact that in this this particular instance, the writer here, he, he doesn't pray these things for himself. He could have, right? He could easily at the end of this letter had said, you know, may the God of peace equip me for good works, in order to do his will. But that's not what he does. What he does is he looks at the congregation, he looks at the body of Christ, and he says, pray for me. Pray for me that my conscience will be clear, that I'll continue to act honorably, that I'll be restored to you. Pray for me. And then he prays for them. I've often thought about the fact that, um, you know, like the life of a disciple, a follower of Christ, our life is no longer about us. It says that he died, that those who live would no longer live for themselves. When we think about so much of the Christian life, it's for the good of other people, right? Uh, think about the fruit of the Spirit, for instance. Love, joy, peace, patience, those things there. They are not for personal consumption, right? I don't produce love and joy and peace in a room in isolation and just go, oh, it's so great to be loving in here by myself, right? Or it's so great to be peaceful with nobody else around. No, the fruit of the Spirit is produced in me for the consumption of others, right? When the fruit of the Spirit is produced in me, it's for you to eat. You get to eat the peace that comes out of my life, and you get to eat the love that comes out of my life, and the patience and the joy. That fruit that God puts on my branches is for others. And so much of the Christian life is that way. It's all about serving others and serving Christ. But it's interesting with regard to prayer that many times Christians get sort of locked into a routine where we only use the incredible gift of prayer, right? We have the, this incredible ability through the blood of Christ to approach the throne of God. And for many Christians, the only time they come before God in prayer is to pray for themselves, God, I want this. God, I need this. God, I'm, hard, uh, I'm having a hard day. I'm sad. I'm hurting. I'm he- heavy hearted. And listen, it's not wrong to pray those things. We see throughout the Bible, godly men and women who turn to God and say, I need you, right? But you know what's even cooler, in my opinion, than praying for myself? What's even cooler is that if, if I'm preoccupied with praying for you, and I'm confident that you're praying for me, then I don't need to pray for myself. You see, in community, where there's trust and love, where there's family, where we truly are a body, I don't need to pray these things for myself because I can rest in confidence that you're praying them for me. And you don't need to pray these things for yourselves because you can rest in the fact that I'm praying them for you and the folks back there are praying for the people up here and the people over here are praying for the people in the first service and the people in the second service are praying for the the people in the kids' ministry and we're praying it for the church in California. We're praying it for the church in America and we're praying it for the church around the world that we as the body of Christ can lift these things up and say, please, may the God of peace who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead by his power, the great shepherd of the sheep, who through the blood of his eternal covenant, may that God, who brings that power and presence to bear, may he equip you with every good thing for doing his will. May he work in you 
for his own pleasure through Christ to the glory of God forever and ever. I don't have to pray that prayer for me. If I'm in community, I can be confident you're praying for me. And here's the reality. As a pastor in this particular place at this particular time, I actually, I know that you're praying this for me already. I feel it, right? I've just lived in the last year, and it's absolutely evident in every page of the chapter of my last year's worth of life that people are praying this for me. And I hope you can feel that I've been praying this for you. But it isn't just about me and you. It's about us. It's about us as a family being dependent upon Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, and recognizing that it's only in his power we'll be able to do the thing we were created to do. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us the hunger to be a praying church, a church who is absolutely dependent upon your power and your peace, your presence, your promise, all these things for the sake of the equipping the restoring, the mending, the work that you do to patch the holes in us so that then you can use us for your purpose. And we thank you for the study we've had in Hebrews. We thank you for the way in which it's focused us again and again on the Lord Jesus. I pray, God, that you'd help us to not be of those who fall away and are destroyed, but of those who remain faithful and preserve their souls. Help us to fix our eyes on you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.